0: Plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words.
0: What do you like this to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music.
1: you pop-crazy youngsters, and welcome back to part three of episode 70 of Chart Music. I'm Al Needham, they're Sarah B and Neil Kulkarni, and we are plunging the fist of analysis into the cow's ring piece of an episode of Top of the Pops from April the 17th, 1986. We've only gone wrist deep so far, but in this part, we're going right up to the elbow, so please Step back a bit, because it's going to get proper messy from here on in. Onward! (laughs)
0: Uh Aha, they're about to start on their first world tour, Australia, next month. Uh, And also, we'll see them here in this country in December. Right now, here's some closer look at the charts.
1: It's the top 40 breakers. and up 13 places to number 27 It's Suzanne Vega and Marlena on the wall
2: David.
1: On a stage with an applauding hand in the bottom corner Which is the nearest we've seen of an actual audience member so far Tells us that our horror are off to Australia And we've got to wait six months to see them He then pivots to the breakers section and first up is Marlena on the Wall by Suzanne Vega. Born in Santa Monica in 1959, Suzanne Vega was the daughter of a Swedish-German computer analyst mother and an English dad who divorced soon after she was born. Two years later, after her man married the Puerto Rican teacher and novelist, Eduardo Vega, she was relocated to New York and eventually studied dance at the High School of Performing Arts, the actual kids from fame mm. school. While studying English Lit at Bernard College in the Aventis, she got properly stuck into the music scene of Greenwich Village, putting herself about at assorted folk venues, and in 1984 she landed a deal with A&M, was linked up with Lenny Kay, the Nuggets compiler and guitarist for Patti Smith, and her debut LP Suzanne Vega was put out in May of 1985. It led to rapturous reviews in the American music press and a live review in the New York Times which called her the Joni Mitchell of the 80s. This single from her debut LP was put out over here last year but only got to number 83 in November of 1985. It's the follow-up of sorts to Small Blue Thing which got to number 65 in January. It was re-released last month, entered the charts at number 92, then soared 31 places to number 61, and then took three weeks to nimbly scale the ladder to number 40. This week, it soared another 13 places to number 27, and here she is, on top of the pops for the first time ever, in a minute and a half of video. More non-English people. What's going on? (laughs) Well, here's a turn-up, chaps. Here's a lady singer-songwriter strumming away on an acoustic guitar in 1986. And in 1986, singer-songwriter means hippies and flares and peace, man. <laughs> mm.
3: The thing is, I th- what's going on here? I think when you're this good, it doesn't actually matter what else is going on in the culture at the time. Mm. God, I fucking love Suzanne Vegas. She's so New York, and she's such mm. an intelligent and emotionally intelligent and exacting songwriter and a really beautiful singer and i mean there are songs of hers that i can't think about without welling up
0: you know but it, it it's precisely that it is 86 That that necessitates this kind of thing. I mean, Mm. you can say, you know, what's a singer songwriter doing in this period? But that's why, uh, you know, uh, I don't think Suzanne Vega is part of any folk revival. By the by, but Mm. you know, a folk revival is a constant threat in a way because it it always (laughs) means the same thing. It always means a retreat into something small and intimate and personal, rather than the big Mm. and the universal and the stadium sized. It's it's this desire Mm. not to be larger than life, but to be as small as life. Mm. And I think that's what vega is appealing to in a big big way so no matter how big and brash the era there will always be people who come to success precisely because they offer an alternative to that
1: she was a pretty big deal round about this time wasn't she? oh yeah i mean five months from now i'm gonna be at a better college doing a drama and english course and suzanne vega was fucking massive amongst all the women on my course oh yeah i mean she was right up there with sylvia plath If Suzanne Vega had done a song called Fuck Off Ted Hughes, it would have been a fucking anthem at my college. And if you wanted to be around these girls, and you did, uh, you better be prepared to listen
0: to a shitload of small blue thing and undertow. Well, no, it's just that Vega is one of the first artists that taught me that taste doesn't matter. And I don't mean that in a critical way of Suzanne Vega. What I mean is when I first met my Mm. missus... She was a huge Suzanne Vega head. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you you realise at that point, look, shared taste isn't what compatibility is about. And actually I got into Suzanne Vega because my wife played her a lot. Mm. And I I just wanted to pick up on one thing Sarah said about the New Yorkness. I think Mm. that's hugely important. Um, yes, there's a real Seinfeld thing to Vega's appeal.
1: You know every single character <laughs> in Friends listened to Suzanne Vega before they
0: actually moved to yeah. New York. Yeah, and she's definitively yeah. a New York artist with all the attendant sort of references that go along with that, you know, coffee shops and diners and restaurants and bohemianism. Mm. But, you know, in interviews, she's a fuck shite sharper than these sort of characterisations, if a she way. She was smart enough not to let her fame, and it was big fame, derail her, mm. and she's still doing great is, is Suzanne Vega. Who's buying this in 86 is I'd say it's kind of Janice Long listeners a bit and Andy Kershaw listeners perhaps mm. but those pop listeners ultimately who want a bit more substance I guess, not necessarily disgusted mm. with modern pop but they're not fully committed to going entirely underground and and actually when you dig into the songs on those first couple of albums by Susan Vega, she's a remarkable songwriter
3: This is one of my favourites of hers because I'm, I'm just that basic but I mean I I know that she thinks of it as like sort of juvenilia now but um, right. she's a songwriter who sort of writes about emotional truth and will draw on her own life experience without necessarily literally translating it into her songs you know mm. some of them are like I mean Tom's Diner I think is really about a moment that, that really happened but um, this she said is more broadly it's about like coping with loneliness and she mm. did actually have a poster of Marlena Dietrich, movie goddess, activist and rampant bisexual badass on her wall. Mm. She didn't necessarily have what sounds like a succession of one night stands under it. But it's a pretty good way to illustrate the feeling of being deeply alone in yourself, this kind of line of anonymous dicks, you know. It's like <laughs> the loneliness <laughs> of the long distance shagger. It's quite a sort of <laughs> studenty song in yeah. a way I mean yeah, yeah. it's in, in the best way I mean for me it kind of it always sounded like she's sort of communing with this poster which is smirking down at her possibly mm. for only doing it with boys when there are so many hot girls at her darling what are you doing <laughs> Uh, she's drawing strength, kind of, not from the sex and not from the wall art, but from the, you know the depths of herself. And I think it's yeah. about being sort of young and ridiculous and not finding fulfillment in the usual young person shit, but seeing a way ahead beyond that. Because not everybody suits mm. being young either. Like I definitely didn't make the most of it because I was just like, ah, it's like there's a certain awkwardness. Like this time in my life doesn't fit, and I kind of want to get past it. You know. Mm. So like just seeing a way ahead to like maturity and authenticity. And a bigness yeah. of self that you don't get in a skinny student bed with a mattress like a slice of sun blessed. No. <laughs>
0: she's usually appealing to the awkward <laughs> when she's touring this year when she plays in Manchester she, she says to the audience it's really special for her to be in Manchester because it's Morrissey's town and I, I think yes. there is that appeal and, and look th- th- there's no point hiding it I sort of quite fancied Suzanne Vega in 1986 oh, yeah. the, the trouble was what I found when I used to read interviews with Suzanne Vega is that interviewers especially male interviewers they did the usual thing of not failing to mention her appearance you know they had to do that mm. um, but then they almost try and draw her into kind of criticising female pop figures. And and, you, and, and yes. Vega would do that. Well, you know, when, Ve- when Vega's asked about Madonna, she's quite critical of Madonna and things like that.
1: Which is pretty ironic because she auditioned
0: for Madonna's part in Desperately Seeking Susan yeah, yeah. the other year. In a way, you know going to the to the Fame school I mean, it was called the Fame school mm. it was a very New York thing and, th- and those things are going to be hugely appealing yeah the New Yorkness is hugely important and I think you know the Tom Steiner is the actual uh, you know it refers to the exact restaurant that they use in Seinfeld so that's why I make that connection in my mind right to be fair to Vega I, I think she was like everyone else is going to get start getting sort of pigeonholed start getting put into a certain category she was always a little bit too smart for that I think mm. and that's why she kept her sanity through this huge success because I mean this the album this is from it goes platinum you know it sells a fucking lot of records
1: yeah there's a lot of people in the UK sipping mugs of gold blend wishing that they were <laughs> flicking through the village voice in a brownstone <laughs> him out the Halifax advert showing off his new cash point card. Mm. He's probably got this on his CD player in his converted warehouse (laughs) when he's got the ladies around.
0: Yeah. But I mean, she's great also at stepping into characters and kind of not Mm. not making it a a, a sort of whiny thing in any way. She's observant. Mm. And I think she's just mm. a good writer. Um, she, kno- yeah. she knows how to observe. She also knows how to let other people speak in her songs. Uh, yeah. and, mm. and consequently, you know, these things stick around a bit longer than it just being, hey, look, if you don't like what's going on in modern pop, this is different. Um, mm. That It sustains a bit longer than that. It's not just a reaction to what's going on. There's something unique about it in itself. Yeah,
3: it's just, she's mm. just so fucking beguiling. I, co- I can hardly stand it.
1: <laughs> so the video... Uh, A&M have dragged her into the 80s by running a bit of synthiness through the song and uh, dropping another regulation 80s big jacket on her because this is the time when all pop stars had to look like a five-year-old who's just broken into the dad's wardrobe.
3: <laughs> the shoulder pads had got out of control at this point.
1: Oh, God, yeah. And that's juxtaposed with her doing as much of a sex as she wants to, which involves wearing a cocktail dress and adjusting her stockings and applying a lip hair. And there's an extra in Bonfire of the Vanity's trying it on with her she is being very
0: much positioned as the anti-madonna here isn't she yeah there is a bit of that she looks she looks great She looks good. The trouble Mm. is with this video, and it's not actually a problem with this video. It's a problem with its context in this episode of Top of the Pops. Is I was watching it and I was just thinking, when's Gary Davis going to interrupt? When's Gary Davis going to interrupt? How long is this going to last? How long is this going to last? You know. Uh.
1: Never mind that. Here's my shopping list for tomorrow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that sense of rushness that they've actually got too much to actually fit into half an hour, so it's going to be a bit breakneck. Yeah, it just Mm. makes it not for a relaxing or even exciting experience in a sense because you just think this is going to get spoiled much as a daytime dj is going to talk over the best bit of a record something's Mm. going to happen here that's going to annoy me yeah
1: but she's put over far better in this video than she would be on that neon step
0: Yeah, yeah i'm not entirely sure that would have worked at all no especially if the lights were in their full pelt kind of swirling around thing yeah and what would the crowd do I mean, well, we don't see him anyway, so a <laughs> she would
3: definitely have looked out of place and it would have felt uncomfortable, even though she's got that very above it cool that you know can cope with anything. Yeah,
0: and crucially, I, I don't think Vega ever came across really as, as perhaps what Andy Kershaw or somebody might have said about her. Oh, an author. I mean, you mentioned actually the word, Sarah, authentic. There is an authenticity to Vega, but she's also. I'm not saying authentic about inauthenticity but there's mystery there as well it's it's not just you know here's my here's my soul mm. here's everything uncovered there's something playful and poetic Mm. about what she does that keeps her interesting I think rather than just being you know here's something I forged in the smithy of my soul it's a bit more thoughtful and playful than that
1: so yeah you know a a time in the chart was fleeting but you could argue that she kicked the door back open for the likes of
0: Tracy Chapman and Katie Lang and Tori Amos and and all that lot oh undoubtedly because each one of them will be compared to her almost immediately Yeah. I mean it's the laziness as well I mean, it's kind of what you said you know she's the Joni Mitchell she's not she's absolutely not really no n- nah. No one can be the, the Joni Mitchell of the 80s was Joni Mitchell well if there was a Joni Mitchell of the 80s it was probably actually Prince but um, you know yes this is the laziness of uh, it's what we were talking about earlier in that you know in, in that singles review page lump all the, the female singers together um, under that title yeah. But, um, yeah,
3: I don't like that yeah. either. However, I I have to weakly defend it in the sense of, like, the, the fewer people there are to compare, then the fewer people there are to compare. You mm. know? So yeah. it's, it's yeah, yeah. kind mm. of, it, it's the sin was committed, like, earlier before it reaches that that level. But also it's about stature, yeah. isn't it? It's not necessarily comparing musically, but once you get a bit of perspective on it and you go, okay, this person is... is up there with you know the greats and I think it's Mm. fair. at that point it's fair enough to talk about her in in you know the context
0: of of Joni Mitchell oh and it did the job I mean it Mm. got assigned so
3: yeah yeah Yeah, so it has its uses
0: Mm.
1: so the following week Marlena on the wall jumped six places to number 21 its highest position The follow-up, Left of Centre, which was part of the soundtrack of Pretty in Pink and featured Joe Jackson on piano, got to number 32 in July and she rounded off the year with Gypsy, only getting to number 77 in November she roared back, sort of in June of 1986 when Luca spent two non-consecutive weeks at number 23 and then spent the rest of the 80s as a bit player in the lower reaches of the top 100 but her biggest hit was DNA's remix of Tom's Diner her 1987 single which got to number 58 in July of that year and it spent three weeks at number 2 in August of 1990 held off number 1 by the more hardcore turtle power by Partners in Crime <laughs> and the UK underground banger Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weenie Yellow Polka Dot Bikini by Bomb Ballerina. Oh, God. 1990,
0: what were you like? Yeah, cheers for reminding us all of that.
3: Tom's Diner Day is November the 18th. 1981 that's when that's when it happened that's when that that devastating resonant moment that has been immortalized in song actually happened
1: so it's like it was a good day by ice cube someone worked out what day that was when the lakers beat the supersonics
3: exactly it's in so many ways it's exactly like that
1: (laughs) good old suzanne Vega. she had a nice cup of coffee and she didn't have to use her ak
0: in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today.
1: This is the highest new entry on
0: the chart this week, the anti-drug song, which is called Just Say No, at number 26, the cast of Grange Hill.
2: Just say no. Act like a great big star. You can be a hero. Be who you are.
1: Say no. no. Say no. Say no. Formed in Lower Mesopotamia no. in 3400 BC, Opium began its career as a forage <laughs> medicine for assorted ailments, which caught on throughout Asia and the Far East via imports from its label, the East India Company. In 1898, during a tour of Germany, morphine, the front alkaloid of the group, teamed up with a biopharmaceutical company in Elberfeld to form an offshoot called Heroin. After starting its career as an over-the-counter morphine substitute cough remedy, which became very popular across Germany, Heroin (laughs) crossed the Atlantic and started to collaborate with jazz musicians such as Billy Holiday, Ray Charles and Charlie Parker. By the 650s, heroin started to take on rock influencers, working with Eric Clapton, John Lennon, Jim Morrison and Janice Joplin before falling out of favour in the mid 70s. In 1977, however, Heroin supported Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers on their tour of the UK, which introduced it to a string of punk acts and underwent a revival, which was boosted by a deluge of cheap imports from Iran and Afghanistan that flooded the British market. By early 1984, heroin, by now in its imperial phase, had become so popular throughout the UK, there had been an estimated increase of addicts numbering 40% year on year, with a Guardian report of the day quoting a government expert who said, LSD was the drug of the 60s. It was supposed to expand the mind to take in new horizons. Heroin is the drug of the 80s. It blocks out the "'and the hopelessness of unemployment and the bleakness of the future.' Meanwhile, over in stateside USA, Nancy Reagan, the first lady who was looking for something to do when she wasn't telling a senile knob end of her husband where to go and on what date, according to what a personal astrologer said and allegedly giving Frank Sinatra a scene to when he was out doing those things, visited a school in Oakland where she was asked by one of the kids about what to do if someone offered them the drugs, taking her cue from an advertising slogan that was floating around at the time she just said, just say no. While she was spearheading the anti-drug message over there throughout 1985, appearing on episodes of Different Strokes, Punky Brewster, and Flintstone Babies, as well as the music video Stop the Madness, which featured New Edition, Latoya Jackson, David Hasselhoff, Herb Alpert, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Casey Kasem, Boogaloo Shrimp, and Stacey Keach, whose appearance was edited out at the last minute when he was buster for Coke, the BBC <laughs> decided to pitch in, and in July of 1985 broadcast Drug Watch, a two hour, ten minute melange of crime watch and that's life which combined nick ross telling us what drugs were esther ranson having assorted interviews with parents of drug addicts a panel of politicians and medical experts and assorted celebrities in one piece on Drug Watch, documenting how the Americans were dealing with the drug problem over there, they aired a clip of a music video, which was written by Al Gorgone, who played guitar on Leader of the Pack, Brown Eyed Girl, The Sound of Silence, Walk Like a Man and Chapel of Love, and George McMahon, who was working at the time with Denise Williams. The video was being aired non-stop on MTV and was entitled Just Say No. As part of the BBC's campaign against drug abuse, they enlisted the services of Grange Hill, which was formed in Northam, North London, in 1978, and had immediately got into trouble with the BBC, parents, teachers and politicians for encouraging the youth to die in swimming pool accidents, <laughs> put grasshoppers in Roland sandwich and say flipping heck, but was <laughs> rightly lapped up by the youth for depicting real Kids, issues. <laughs> Consequently, on January the 6th of this year, the ninth series of Grain Chill began with Zamo Maguire, played by Lee Macdonald, showing off his new motorbike and attempting to rig the weight of Mr Kennedy's moustache in order to win six quid. Then he went on to sell his bike and started to ponce money off everyone, including Roland Browning, who now worked part-time in an amusement arcade where Zamo had been knocking about with assorted wrong Mm. And on February the 21st, the mystery was resolved when Roland found Zamo on the floor with a bit of foil in his hand, having chased the dragon and receiving a smack on the nose. Just over a fortnight ago, directly after the final episode of the current series of Grange Hill, where Zamo's been busted after being found with a wrap of smack secreted in his pocket calculator, Drug Watch aligned with Newsround and Grange Hill in a triforce of televisual drug prevention in the programme It's Not Just Zamo. Which culminated with the world premiere of a cover of Just Say No, performed by the cast of the TV show, which was rushed out on BBC Records, with all proceeds going to the Standing Committee of Drug Abuse, otherwise known as Skoda. It came out last week and has immediately launched itself into the chart like a sausage on a fork, becoming this week's <laughs> highest new entry at number 26. And here is a clip of the video. And oh my God, pulp craze youngsters, I hope you've had a big tea because we've got a long day ahead of us talking about this one. Fucking hell.
0: Indeed. A lot to talk about here. So, heroin. Mm.
1: (laughs) Don't know what the fuss is all about. I can handle it. (laughs) Just got a touch of the flu today. So yeah, let's place ourselves back in 1986. I'm 17, Uh Neil's 12, Sarah's 7 or 8. What did you know about drugs at the time?
0: Well, I mean, like you say, I was young, um, 12 going on 13. I hadn't really come across drugs. I'd had friends who'd done drugs. At that age? Yeah, quite, I mean, not, not sort of serious drugs. And they're not silly drugs like paracetamol and a can of Coke either. Um, you know, glue, butane, that sort of stuff. Uh, Yeah. But, you know, um, but in contrast to the way I became as an adult, I was kind of cautious about drugs before getting to Mm. drugs. Not because, I I hasten to add, of things like just say no, but because of a cautionary experience that taught me that, you know, if I got out of my face, I'd get caught, just like I did with everything. Right. Because I I got um, arrested by the British Transport Police. Um, No! Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, how old were you? I was about 13, 14. All right. um, Yeah, and and I I thought it was a bright idea to drink an entire bottle of gin at Memorial Park in Coventry. Um, Right. And uh, then went, for some reason, to the cafe at the station and woke up in a pile of vomit. (laughs) The British Transport Police, not proper coppers, but British Transport Police, they they took me upstairs at the station and put me in a cell (gasps) and phoned my mum. And so the sight of that cell door swinging open and my mum stood there silhouetted against the, uh, the harsh light of Coventry Station that kind of stuck with me And, it, oh, and it I mean she didn't actually bollock me I, I think she realised the shame was enough but um, mm-hmm. yeah that kind of put me off drugs a little bit so soap bar and red lab and speed and acid and mushrooms they really only started becoming part of my life aged about 16 and, and, and at this point when just say no comes out beyond those few friends who did kind of glue and gas and stuff i wasn't really exposed to drugs but i do actually blame this record and the moral panic at the time and the inevitable way that getting back into 60s music makes you ever so curious about drugs you know hmm, Mm. what's this heroin this guy's singing about sounds moorish um i blame all (laughs) of that for my subsequent Druggies, but this did not help this record, because it made straight edginess so uncool. So, not loads Mm. of drugs knocking about my life at the time, but I I blame this record for sending me that way. Sarah? Well, I mean, all the cool kids at my little West Yorkshire
3: CFE village school were scagged up to the eyeballs (laughs) at this time. We used to call them right bloody pricks, but as a compliment, (laughs) one time, right, they raided the Brickhouse and Rastric Brass Band practice room and found a kilo of primo afghani brown with a street value of two <laughs> grand stuffed into the euphonium mm. of course we were too young so we just sniffed the pritt sticks and dreamed.
1: <laughs> all that brasso line about those sarah <laughs>
3: <laughs> well there was that that was like the gateway drug for everyone. But um yeah, I don't know. I was no, I was entirely innocent at the time. Mm. I was like all through school, really, like I don't remember, but I wasn't like one of the cool kids or even one of the uncool, cool kids. Mm. You know, like people mm. talk about, Oh yeah, I was an outsider at school. Yeah, so you were cool then, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was <laughs> neither of these, so um I had no idea. Um I don't remember either. I was I'm drawing a complete blank as to what like we got told about it or
0: what we got taught about it.
3: We, there must have been something.
0: Oh god, there was. But I, just don't I, I recall this period being, a, a, you know, there's a growing barrage of propaganda about drugs in this period, mm. of which um, this was the culmination, really. This record.
1: I'm 17 at the time, and I, I've got to admit, I knew and had experienced precisely fuck all, mm. like you, mm. Neil. Mm. It was all glue round our way, but glue was on its way out by
0: 1986. It's weird, isn't it? Because when you th- I, when I think about walking around in the early 80s, the sight of glue bags mm. was as common as as kind of of those gas canisters are now. Yeah, um, But yeah, you're right, it was on its way out. When
1: I was 12, I had one sniff of my grandpa's tin of Bostic and spent the rest of the night in an absolute state thinking, well, am I going to die yeah. now? Yeah. <sighs> I'd left comprehensive school in 1984, and the only bit of drug education we ever got was when Mr Gallagher, our science teacher, spent an entire lesson telling us what happened to our bodies when we sniffed glue. And it was proper shit yeah. up, and it was fucking brilliant. And it's, it's one of the two... <laughs> Lessons that stuck right. with me th- throughout all these years. So good on you, Mister Gallagher. <laughs> but that was it at our school. The teachers might as well have said, you know, don't poke a fucking lion in the face with a stick <laughs> on your way home tonight. <laughs> Even now, in 1986, drugs are seen as something that only poshos and mm. hippies did. Who can afford them? Right now, way, it was just say what, <laughs> <laughs> just say eh. I mean, round about this time, the nearest I got to drugs was going to Rock City or the garage and seeing a group of lads in leather jackets who looked like they could be the support Mm. band, uh, passing a needle about at the bar and pretending to inject themselves. (laughs) But looking back now, it's obvious that it was all a cod and they were showing Mm. off because they were injecting it through the sleeves of their leather jackets. (laughs) But it was like, I was proper terrified. Just got to the other end of the club. Yeah, They just weren't a thing. round my way. I think this was probably... um, I was like too young
3: to watch Grange Hill, Um, but this was probably my first inkling that drugs were even a thing in the world, you know. Mm. And it was mysterious and not in an alluring way, but in a sort of bemusing way. And I kind of got the message on some level because it's... Mm. You know, as I'm sure we'll get into, it's so incredibly simplistic. I mean, at school,
1: yeah, I, I do remember a lot of people wanting to take sociology specifically so they could do um, stuff on youth culture. Mm. Because that's where all the drug information was. And yeah. you were allowed to get the books that told you about acid and mm-hmm. mushrooms and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah, it was definitely seen as something that people did in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah, or just that people did elsewhere in gritty cop dramas and stuff like that. Yes. It, it, it was never kind of yeah on the street or in front of you no which makes the moral panic sort of like really quite odd um mm. at this time and counterproductive obviously um, yeah unlike you i did get some sort of drug education at school right we got the propaganda from the government basically <laughs> that the that, that, that before this campaign of drug watch there is that one-off never broadcast Minder episode yes um, a little bit of give and take which is filmed and, and it's sent out it's, it's half an hour long and, it, and it's actually the last time Cole and Waterman play those characters the, oh really the series, yeah the series had actually ended by that point but they both decided to kind of do this because it's an important message and, and this mm. this little mini episode of Minder is filmed and it's uh, sent out to schools by you know Norman Fowler at the DSL <laughs> and I, I recall it after that's disseminated to schools I seem to call watching this Far more than I, than I recall. Um, Lenny Henry also had a little video that he sent out to school called Chasing the Bandwagon, which right. I, doesn't, I don't think I've watched it. But a little bit of give and take, the Minder episode. I didn't like Minder, so I think I turned off around about, not turned off, but mentally turned off and started mm. looking out the window about 10 minutes in.
1: If it had been Gideon
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. says no to drugs, you you have been a bit more mm-hmm. interesting, wouldn't you? Indeed, Different kettle of fish or Ludwig.
1: We've got to start with that episode of Drug Watch because we've seen it, haven't we? I, mm-hmm. mean, mm-hmm. out. I mean, fucking hell. I mean, yeah. Drug Watch today sounds like Belody observing some spices having a fight in a shopping <laughs> precinct in Mansfield.
0: But fucking hell, it's a remarkable document of the age, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. I mean, it it's simultaneously sort of gogglingly odd because of the celebs involved. Oh, yes. But my God, it's deeply bleak as well.
1: It starts with Nick Ross standing next to a groaning table of drugs to show your man what she should be looking for in your pants drawer when you're out (laughs) You know, Including a line of cocaine which apparently costs £15 uh, next to some red and white striped straws like a dismembered Humphrey. (laughs) And a chunk of ash that you could club an elephant to death with. It's It's a fucking 900 (laughs)
3: I was just waiting for him to sneeze, you know,
1: (laughs) and just, just fuff it everywhere. Um, It it does look like Sean Ryder's buffet table, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I
3: love how he he points out, he goes, this is marijuana, the, the leaves. It's like, mate, that is dill you and the bbc have all been had
1: <laughs> but then we get some fucking horrific interviews with parents who have lost their kids to drugs or mm, are losing mm. their kids to drugs or are working out how to kill them if they ever come back in the house looking for something to nick
0: to get drugs with i mean that's the that's life segment of it and that's fucking horrible oh god yeah when it steps outside of the studio and actually talks to people affected by the issue fucking hell it's it yeah This is the era of threads, don't forget. Yes. But it's just as depressing.
3: It's that colour palette, isn't it? That sort of dingy, Mm. sort of depressing. Look that that these things have, and it's just you know, and then the sort of weirdly, like Esther Ranson is such a strange presence. It's not that she's upbeat, but she's got this sort of light twittering voice. It's like ah, yeah, <laughs> it was just really, really jingling my
1: nerves. Yeah, what a shame Cyril Fletcher wasn't there either, or or Doc Cox <laughs> talking about some jobs were drug dealer. I couldn't
3: watch all of it. I have to be honest, it was oh. so so unhappy. It was awful. Um There was a, a woman who's talking about um, her son who died. Yeah. She's in the studio and Esther Ranson goes and like there's an audience there and there's mm. some guy who wants the mic and and the woman is like well I blame myself for my son's death mm. and Esther takes the mic over to some random who goes yeah, I blame you, too. Yeah! And, and no <laughs> one says... anything, insane, wasn't it? No one says anything. There's no murmuring, there's no anything. Mm. It's it's so eerie. It's like ambient Jeremy Kyle.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and isn't David Meller really small? <laughs> you see him on this panel of politicians, and he's fucking tiny! Well, that's probably not his fault, unless, you know, maybe maybe his mum did loads of drugs, and that was her fault. How did Antonio DeSantia get his fucking Chelsea shirt on?
0: Mm. Would have been a kid's size, I would have thought,
1: yeah, Mudge <laughs> you, you would want it just over your head if you were being shagged by David <laughs> Maller
0: well, yeah. I mean, th- look, the thing is, Nick Ross is a deeply antagonising presence, I find. Mm. Um, him lecturing you, you just don't want it. Mm. It's simultaneously designed to do its job of saying the BBC are sort of like anti-drugs. And it mm. keeps on saying as well... Just in case you, you were tr- wondering. Yeah, we're going to give <laughs> you the truth. We're going to give you a balanced thing. But it doesn't emerge like that. It, it emerges as being lectured by a load of grown-ups. Yes. And, you know, consequently, it doesn't really work. Mm. Mm. The celebs on it, like, the end bit is just fucking <laughs> remarkable I mean they announce a special guest
1: near the end to sign a wall with just say no plastered across it and you think well this is obviously going to be Nancy Reagan because mm, right about this mm. time she would have pitched up on fucking Murrumbush but <laughs> if she could have banged on to him about drugs but no it's Lady fucking Die it is who, yeah. who signs the wall and then says nothing of worth
0: to Esther but, but still
1: fucking hell
0: I know it's a bit of a coup that yeah um and it provides a sort of a, a kind of counterpoint to who we then see oh, yes. around this world.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's essentially a rounding up of the BBC bar,
0: isn't it? It is basically. It's it. incredible. Yeah, I mean.
3: Diana kind of gets a pass from me forever because of what she did to break down the stigma of AIDS. You know, yes. it is quite surreal to see her just kind of wander onto the set. And say, well, of course, I thought this was a, a, a tremendously important subject, and I just had to come
0: and put my name to it. Yes, um,
1: mm, mm. she's a fucking angel.
0: Uh, <laughs> Well, there is this reverence, isn't there, from everyone? Yes. She's got star quality in terms of the kind of little hushed reverent silence that happens.
3: I understand why she would do it. I understand why they'd want to get her. You know, like it is this whole thing, much as it isn't mm. relevant to, to most people. I think the, you can feel the idea behind it is that they just want to hammer down on this to put the fear of God into the kids before they even start to really think about what drugs even might be at yeah. all. Mm. Mm. It, it is quite... BBC
1: apocalypse, isn't it? Like <laughs> She does draw on the fact that she's a mother and she's worried about her kids taking I mean, drugs. Yeah, and, we know uh, how yeah. they turned
3: out and I don't think drugs was what she needed to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but the people, like, spotting the... Because pe- there's just... There's a crowd just milling oh, about and people
1: it just chatting. It never ends. You have to watch it about five or six times
0: to get everyone. After
3: Diana has signed the big drug watch wall, everyone else yep. just gets a Sharpie and uh, adds their signature.
0: I've got a list. Yeah, me too. <laughs>
1: with my chant music head on, the, the first person I spotted, of course, was Simon Bates. Yeah. He's accompanied by Noel Edmonds, mm. John Peel, mm. Terry Wogan, Susie Quatro, with a proper "Mum Came Back From Greenham Common and Dad Started Sleeping in the Spare Bedroom Haircut. <laughs> Des Lynham, Lenny Enre. Sebastian Coe He's so oily I hate Sebastian Coe (laughs) He's an oily man Yeah he does look proper captain of the cricket team David Watts style doesn't he there Yeah Adamant
0: Yeah chatting to Christopher Ryan
3: Mike the cool person I'm so confused now He's there to say I don't want to say anything negative But no
1: Rolf Harris, oh. who of course does a massive role for Roo. He does hog quite a large bit of a lot of What board, I,
3: I, Surely a smackaroo would have had more impact. Like a horrifying <laughs> human marsupial hybrid lying
1: in a pool of its own vomit with a needle sticking out of its weird little arm. We also have Alison Moyer, mm-hmm. Mick Tolbert, <laughs> Colleen Nolan, Sarah Green, Fluella Benjamin. Out of a dustbin. Mm. Wendy Craig. Oh, I didn't see Yes, Ernie Wise, Barbara Dixon, Sandra Dickinson, Anna Carteret, Joanna Lumley, Pete Townsend. Mm. Mm. I think Emlyn Hughes. Oh, Bob Monkhouse, and of course. Jingle nonce OBE yeah.
0: and, and uh, Nigel Havers. Did you mention him? No, oh, he's there. But
1: th- there's also signatures as well from, from people who obviously were yeah. uh, passing through the BBC and wanted to, you know, register their displeasure with mm. drugs. Uh, they include Ian Jure, <laughs> Sue Cook, Leslie Crowther, Sting, Paul Weller. Shelly and Mike from Book's Fizz, Spike Milligan, <laughs> Barry Cryer, Wendy Richard, Rula Lenska, John Craven, Samantha Fox, and Jonathan King. Mm. Fucking <gasps> hell. <sighs> Imagine if I was at home in a fucking bed sit, taking smack. If, if I'd known that <laughs> Barry Cryer was against it. I mean,
0: God love Barry Cryer, but... Fucking hell. Yeah, it's an odd mix, isn't it? And, it's uh, extremely odd mix. <laughs> and the thing is, like... All of these celebs they stood around because once they've signed the wall like there's not a lot for them to do. There's no refreshments
3: no, no. like let them at the buffet table that we saw earlier.
0: Yes. I think that's what brought half of them there, you know. 're right.
1: Are they giving out party bags afterwards? <laughs> the thing is to be totally fair
3: most of these people and uh, will be on the level and won't have done drugs. They'll have done worse things than much worse things, but you know, mm. but a lot of them mm. won't have done. But Ian Jury, eh, you know, I know that Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll is not meant to be taken literally. Yes. but. but but he liked a spliff as I understand it he was you know he was Mm. a he was a pothead you know see yeah. my dealer
0: he's called simon um yeah, yeah. it's kind of disappointing seeing his name on there actually yeah
1: yeah but the thing was you could you could say oh well i'm just talking about heroin here yeah
3: really specifically mm.
1: no one's gonna say well you know i'd do heroin it's f- <laughs> fucking mint. what's what's the problem it's
3: interesting as well like that to kind of see the pre-ecstasy landscape of of drugs as well because obviously this is the ecstasy is on its way over in mark armand at this point so you know mm. that's the This is going to hit soon. Mm.
0: There was a really good moment, by the way, in that it's not just Zamo Newsround special, where John Craven, I don't know whether Mm. it was scripted or not, but um, he adds to all these warnings you know that you shouldn't do it and it's dangerous you don't know what you're getting and all this sort of stuff Mm. but he flips back into an almost sort of Victorian thing he goes it will bring disgrace upon you (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) these messages are destined to fail Mm. because no matter how they tart it up and hide it as kind of we're going to take an even handed look at these things it is just being hectored by grown ups
3: it's all very catholic I think Mm. there's this drilling down to the sense of shame that they feel is what is going to ultimately motivate people. Shame and, and terror. Mm. Not even about the criminal aspect, but, like, the moral notion of, like, your sinful desires and the yep. pollution of the body. You know, it's like only the corrupt <laughs> would soil their person with these, you know, vile substances. It's mm. like, really, there's some really, like, seriously grim mm. shit.
1: So there we go. The celebrities sorting out the problems of the world once again. But now the big guns have been dragged out grange hill chaps did you partake i did I, I loved grange hill
0: oh yeah early grange hill was great not because mm. it was sort of what it set out to be and what it got complaints about i mean i went to school with people who were banned from watching grange hill by their parents <laughs> Fucking hell. but it really wasn't this gritty portrayal of real school life but it felt like school Um, yes uh, by which i mean the kind of laughs that you have to grab at school (laughs) to fend off the misery and and Mm. the corridors and the staircases and and the beating zones and everything Mm. else (laughs) it did capture that kind of on the edge feel of school where you've got these preposterous rules and this mix of teachers the bastards and the and the soft touches in the Mm. Tucker <laughs> What a cynic you are, well, Mr. <laughs> Culcana. <no, but>, <laughs> Speaking know, as a teacher. But but yeah, well. Which one are you? I'm definitely a soft touch, man. Soft touch. <laughs> oh. But oh. it did capture all of that. In the in the in the Tucker Benny Pogo years of seasons one to eight, mm. it, it captured all of that. But of course, by now um in 86 a lot of the founding characters are gone the whole yeah. sucker doily dynamic has been replaced by the gonch uh, danny kendall dynamic mm. and it's got a bit preachy with asamo yeah. as this central christ-like figure <laughs> who's gone through <laughs> this kind of druggy redemption arc. where we find grain jill here it always freaked me out at this point it's kind of shedding its past but susan tully Still seems to hang around at school, um, yes. looking like Robert Smith, you know, running yeah, up against well, she, she Bridget she the Midget. She turned
1: up dressed up like Boy George, didn't That's she, in that right, one yeah. episode?
0: But she, she just keeps saying to Bridget the Midget, you know, I don't go here now, I, co- I can wear what I want. But, but I mean, yeah. fundamentally, the army
1: of standards now, fuck
0: yeah. you. <laughs> but fundamentally, at this point, the old guard have gone. And, and mm. my watching of Grangell is going to taper off from here on him, really.
1: Yeah, I find that the older you get as you progress through the comprehensive system, the less of a hold Grangell has on you because you've, you've seen that it's mm. a sham.
0: Yeah, 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 completely. And what we see in series eight and nine, which straddle 85 and 86, I mean, we've got a new script editor, Anthony Mangella, who'd later make the English patient. He, he brings more comedy in. Mm. via Gonch and Hollow and, and another whole set of characters who we see here. The first real change of the guard since season 5 in 83 when Zamo and Faye Lucas, who takes lead vocal on the track, by the way, and Roland etc, yes. were introduced. So we mm. do have all these these new characters in Grange Hill yeah. at the moment.
1: Sarah, did you partake or were you banned? I, I dabbled, I guess. Um,
3: <laughs> I never really got into it. Um, I suppose I was too young at this time and then I sort of missed it. I, I would sort of watch it out of one eye occasionally. Yeah. I didn't have the best time at school and so i don't really want to be reminded of it yeah. when i was not mm, at school I suppose. Yeah, yeah. but it definitely it gives you that atmosphere of like it's a bit
1: <laughs> yeah you know the yeah. lawless zones of the of the stairwells and things yeah. when it first started i was still at junior school and it, it was around about that time where it was like oh you're going to big school soon kids shove your head down the toilet every day and people were making it sound really grim and you look at grange and go oh actually it's not that bad but when you do get to school, it's like, oh god, school shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I
3: got swung round by my ponytail once yeah. by another Oof. girl, and that was that was something. I mean, you you wouldn't if you saw that on Grange Hill, you go nah, <laughs> can't. Yeah. Be. But yeah, that was uh, I was even as I was going round in a circle and passing out, I was I was impressed.
0: So <laughs> like, you got to be strong, you know. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Grange Hill for the first kind of few years, it's like um, it's like scum for kids, basically. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's all about fear and, and and yeah, which is a big component of school. But yeah, it was yeah, slightly yeah. Yeah, stressed in those early series. Mm.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's it's Phil Redmond, sir, Phil Redmond, if you please, who mm. is you know an important writer who gave us the obviously the first on screen pre-Watershed lesbian kiss in Brookside and also crashed a fucking plane into Emmerdale <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so like, you know, yeah, yeah. that was him mm. so he definitely had a, a yen for
1: disaster in that way yeah. it was a bit of an imitation Edmonds because in the grain Chill annuals he always banged on about his helicopter and it's like, oh, yeah, I have to go, you know, I work in Liverpool, and so when I have to go for film yeah, for Granger, yeah. I'll get into my helicopter. My helicopter's brilliant. I mean, obviously, he's just saying, well, you know, loads of lads are reading this. What are they interested in? Oh, yeah, helicopters. I'll talk about that all the time. But, yeah, he used to fucking bang on about his helicopter. All right, mate, we know you've got an helicopter. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> I think he's loosening his grip, if you like, on Granger mm. at this point. Yeah. I think his last kind of concrete act here is, is putting Ziggy in this the Scouse character always seemed like a really unlikely pupil at Grange Hill
1: it prepares us for the moving of the whole fucking school to Liverpool oh god yeah at the end
0: which is mental that's Uh, on a
1: par with Bobby in Dallas yeah coming to and realising it was all a dream oh we're actually all in (laughs) Liverpool now are we okay
0: so yeah i mean this is a period it's in transition loads of new characters vince mm. savage this kind of gormless troglodyte um mm. robbie wright trevor cleaver mr bronson makes his first appearance oh, in this series god like mr bronson yeah and you've got <laughs> new, you've got sort of a new set of girls in grange hill callie donington and her mate ronnie Bertles and laura reagan they're the ones by the way who do the don't listen to anyone else bit in the song Mm-hmm. And Jones, he's kind of got a really big Buffon haircut. Ant Jones, like yeah, yeah, he's undoubtedly a reflection of George Michael. I think, mm.
1: um, yeah, oh, he's definitely there as the as the heartthrob of
0: Chill. Yeah, and he delivers of <laughs> the, course the new stewpot. <laughs> yeah. and he delivers the line all you got to do is be yourself oh. um, in, in the song oh,
3: he's so serious about it <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: let's talk about the video then because it, it starts with Zamo
1: in an extremely old school gym while some youth attempts to sell the drugs to a very young John Alford so you know mm. an intervention's made and then immediately we whip to the past because we see Tucker Jenkins the fucking don of Grange Hill DJing a youth club disco which Danny Kendall being dragged to with uh, shots of youths walking up corridors with their arms round each other trying to make it feel like the breakfast club <laughs> and then faye lucas who appears to have come as someone's nan in a pink cardigan starts emoting at the mic in a studio with kendall emelda davis hmm. who was the gripperette of the current series and of course <laughs> roland and his helpful nemesis
0: janet yeah but the thing is they're all getting along right yes um, And I recall one of the things I immediately didn't like about this video at the time is Mm. that all the dynamics of the actual show just kind of absconded completely in the video. Everyone's friends and everyone joins in. We're seeing the cast, not the characters. Yeah, I know. But it's the way that they pick up Danny Kendall on the stairs. And he's just part of the fun. I hated Danny Kendall. He was one of the nastiest, most hateful characters.
1: I thought he was a brilliant character. (laughs) It was surprising that it was uh, Zamo who got into smack and not Danny Kendall. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean.
3: That's partly why this is such a profoundly... I think there are many reasons why this is a profoundly uncomfortable watch. <laughs> but it's partly because even not having the deep knowledge of Grange Hill, it's like, are they in character yeah. or are they out of character? Yeah. It's like this sort of no man's land between the two. Mm. And they don't know. I mean, their actors, you know, they. I think they're kind of going, oh, I'm not really sure what we're supposed to be doing here. And they're
0: doing their best. Mm. Exactly. And because Zamo's like, that, you know, he's just gone through this drug ordeal. He's still going through it. Yeah, I mean him warding off this kid at the beginning. Yeah. And telling him to just say no with real earnestness. The kid kind of looks guilty in a sense. Whereas you know any kid having Zamo lecturing them would yeah. you say, fuck off, Samo, you hypocrite. He does sell it though, to be fair. Just say no. Yeah. Like he really gives it. And and
3: everyone else that you know, just say no is repeated, I didn't count, but I don't know, thirty times mm. in the following three minutes, and no one else looks like they mean it.
0: Mm. I mean the thing is, it does look like it's in a school, right? It's got that typical yeah. Grange Hill staircase. Yeah. Which always reminds me, you know you know, expulsion legends at school where you'd hear that a kid had been expelled and you didn't know why, and then you found yeah. out there was a kid called Billy Woodhead in my school I, went, I remember going to his house once and he had a massive knife collection, he was a bit of a badden um, <laughs> but I remember hearing a legend, because he just suddenly disappeared from school and everyone was wondering where he was and why he got kicked out and right. it turned out he chucked our headmaster who was called Taff he chucked him down the stairs. It was a no. ledge around our way. And there were stairs very, very much like the ones that we see here. Oof. So, yeah, no, but Sarah's completely correct. It doesn't quite know. Yes, it's the cast of Grange Hill. Yes, I know we've been told that. Mm. But it, it's kind of uncomfortably on the edge. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Danny, Danny Kendall, he would be dealing. He'd be chopping out Roland's first line of code. Mm. It annoyed me because it kind of perpetuated that school disco fiction that everyone gets along on the last yeah, day of school. Yeah, that's know? bollocks, isn't it? <laughs> It is bollocks. Mm. Although the school disco parts of the video are fairly realistic. I mean, I don't mm. recall the light show at our school disco being quite so spectacular. It was more like my sister's game of disco lights at my <laughs> school. But what happens next? The gym bits. We cut back to the youth club mm. with Annette Furman,
1: I think. Is it Annette Furman? Because she left mm. at the end of the last series. I think it is, though. Yeah, right. I think, yeah. well, that makes no sense. <laughs> and Ant Jones, who's clearly being pitched as the heartthrob of the programme mm. When he sings, all you've got to do is be yourself It's the most self-conscious bit of singing Since Morrissey was accidentally booked onto Soul Train
3: <laughs> He's just, yeah, the sort of the gently half-closed eyes And the sort Ooh. of the gentle tipping of the head to and fro Like, he's really, really getting into it And into yeah. the idea He's lining
1: himself <laughs> up for that career, isn't he? If I'd have been a few years younger and watching Gretchen, I would have fucking hated
0: him Oh, yeah yeah, yeah. But obviously being popular with girls <laughs> It was direct George Michael influence I think on his Mm. entire look and his presence in that show. And then they
1: show us all the fun things that we could be doing instead Mm. of taking drugs, including dancing in leotards if you're a girl or gawping at girls dancing in leotards if you're a boy (laughs) or shaking your ass in front of a big mirror or being in a gym. Mm. The musk of the kids from fame still (laughs) lingers over the music scene in 1986, doesn't it? Mm.
3: I think that's really directly taken from the American version as well like the the whole kind of aesthetic and the whole like kids from fame which obviously the american totally. version does better
1: this is like i mean they've got better the, gyms aren't there for a kick-off
3: well yeah but there's there's like the 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 little you know advert version from the states and they're all out in the street like in in fame and mm. it's much more diverse you know like basically everything about the uk version is sort of it's a really close analog but about 70 percent whiter <laughs> i would say yes it's setting up like physical exercise and expression as like the antidote, really. Mm. Well, that's what you do instead of drugs. Yeah. We know yeah, that you're like you've got an urge to do something. Why don't you do uh, aerobics in yeah. the disco? <laughs> and there is like a little dance routine within the school disco, which, like you said, is more realistic. Apart from that, because everyone's just like shuffling about. Yeah. Mm. in yeah. that way that you do before you understand how to move your limbs at all. You know, <laughs> the pinnacle of the discomfort of this video, I think, is is seated within the little hand gesture, Mm. which would have got you beaten to some sort of jelly if you ever used it yourself to just say no. And you can see them kind of... (laughs) Well,
1: I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah, because, you know, up until this morning, I would have just sat there and sneered at you, more or less, and said, oh, well, obviously, Sarah, they're doing sign language, Oh, you know, because deaf kids need to be warned about drugs as well. (laughs) I mean, they do this series of hand gestures where they ball their fists up and cross them over really quickly before sweeping the right hand away Mm. and yeah for nearly 35 years i've assumed that they're doing sign language in order to get the hearing impaired youth up to speed but I checked on the internet to see how accurate it was, because mm-hmm. I'm that thorough. <laughs> and it's all bollocks.
2: It's <laughs> all absolute bollocks.
1: <laughs> According to the British Sign Language Dictionary, okay, we can all do this at home now. Mm. All right. If you want to say no to a drug dealer, but can't be bothered to talk to them, here's how you go about it, mm. right? So, just is bringing up the left hand in a pincer movement, like you were picking a pear from a tree. Okay. Right? All right. Say is pointing to your chin with your left index finger and then throwing it out mm-hmm. to the person you're talking to. And no right. is shaking your head and bringing the flat of your palms out like Tommy Cooper, <laughs> right? So we can safely say that the cast of Granger are not doing that at all, are oh, they? Man. No, That would have been they?
3: much better.
1: Because I'm extra thorough, I thought, oh, hang on a minute, this is an American song <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're ripping off an American video. So I went over and checked the American Sign Language Dictionary because right. they have different know. way of going about with sign language because they're awkward cunts who think the summer <laughs> <laughs> which means that if you're british and deaf and yeah, you, yeah. you bump into an, a deaf american person you can't talk to each other no that's fucking mental such a silly country <laughs> but anyway so i checked their sign language dictionary and it's even less like what <laughs> the user a grangel are doing mm-hmm. so that raises the question why why? Why are they doing that?
0: And who told them to do that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. Somebody's devised that. Yeah. The shittest illegal paper, rock, scissors move ever. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> is... <the> paper,
3: <laughs> paper, scissors, rock. No. Yeah. Like, like, you can see that they're all, like, giggling in this quite yes. endearing way. Because it was either that or cringe themselves literally inside out. Because they
1: all get it wrong. Some of them do it with the left hand. Some of it doing with the right hand. Some of them, you can see them bashing their fists together <laughs> and laughing about it. So, yeah, it's... It's, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> uh... So if there are any pop crazy youngsters out there who are conversant in sign language, I'm begging you, please look at the video available on the video playlist and tell us what they're actually mm. signing, mm. if anything. Because for all I know, someone on the film crew could have got them to sign Hail Lord Satan <laughs> or Heroin is Skilled just for the laugh. <laughs> very strange
3: oh my god that's like four weddings where she learned sign language so she can flirt with the deaf guy and it's like would you like to dance that would be mice <laughs> <laughs>
0: it doesn't help that the gym bits I mean they happen over perhaps one of the most sort of objectionable 80s sax solos this side of oh. Kelly Loggins the danger zone really it, it, mm. it's, and I think Sarah's right undoubtedly this is a nod back to kids from fame a little bit yes because it's kids in their pants pretty much in a gym <laughs> it, it can't help coming across like the opening of that thermal cock sex ed video which I still can't <laughs> erase from my mind but I mean crucially you know if you're a young adult who this video is presumably trying to reach mm. this model of health and efficiency provided by the cast it, it's mm. vile and unsexy and unexciting and nothing you really want to get involved in
1: and then because it's the mid 80s we get the sole british contribution to the song some rap, some rap. performed by a Mulky christa and mm. i've said that wrong and i do mm. apologize to him who played kevin balan mainly because he's the one black male yeah. in Grange. He's <laughs> this season's uh benny isn't it yeah, so what was it made you do it? You had no need, first a taste, then a craving, then it turned to greed. <laughs> Calling me your main man, you didn't really understand. After all, you did to me, expecting me to shake your hand. No, there <laughs> we go. <laughs>
3: I love how it's that sort of proto-John Barnes flow, you know, catch me yes. if mm. you can, because I'm the heroine man. <laughs> Three lines on my desk, I know we can't go wrong. Get around here for some crack. <laughs> <laughs> that bridge, the Dolus and dullest yes. do, mm-hmm. it it's been in my head for weeks. <laughs> it, my brain just keeps defaulting to it. I'll be there just trying to, like, you know, make a cup of tea. Dolus <laughs> <dullest> and
1: dullest <laughs> do. It's...
3: I have to hand it to them it's not a very good song but that is a very catchy hook you're right Sarah it is catchy
1: and yeah we end back at the youth club with the girls doing some proper kids from faming with a stop motion jump and kick they missed a trick in this video because what they should have put in to really drive the message home is Mr Bronson dressed up as a hippie in a fucking Jethro Tull (laughs) t-shirt with a spliff on giving the peace sign and and playing a guitar solo through it
3: Yeah. How, that would have been men. How could they have done this better? Like, because it seems neither one thing nor another, it's kind of not in universe, it's not in the real world either. Mm. Um, like, how could they? I mean, they would have had to either go comedy, like go full on kind of slapstick silliness, or go oh, much darker.
1: funny about drugs there. <laughs> well,
3: yeah, so they couldn't ever have done that. So, But this is the thing, I feel like this is a compromise born of just the sheer awkwardness of like, well, how do you fit this into that? And how does this go with it? And you just kind of, it seems like it should be logical, but once you start, and I've done so many, like, little um, kind of copywriting jobs like this, where they go, we want this idea in there, but you want it through this prism, and theres and it's like ah no that Mm. isn't
1: and we want it to go viral as well oh god yeah (laughs) oh I used to fucking hate that oh yeah we want to do this thing and we really want it to go viral can
3: you make a viral video
1: and so I'd think well yeah okay then get your managing director to stand outside a school with no trousers or pants on doing Hitler salutes (laughs) and then eating his own shit out of an ice cream tub that'll go viral (laughs) that'll do it it won't cost you much either (laughs) apart from
0: bail what's really weird as well you know when in researching this for cmp mm. i did the thing immediately uh, google the lyric yes and i couldn't find any I, mean, I know the shame is so deep around this record yes. that you know it can't even be rehabilitated in any way it also needs saying that the actual central lyrical conceit here just say no right mm. how rude <laughs> yeah just say no thank you no thank you you know very really Yeah, and the, and the idea that all you got to do is
1: be yourself. So a 14-year-old whose fucking hormones are going berserk, mm. the last thing they can do is be themselves. Yeah. They're turning into this fucking beast with the hair
0: where there wasn't before. Well, I mean, what if being yourself is taking shit loads of drugs? Yes! I mean, or conversely, yeah. you know, what if being yourself is living in a tiny shit-old town with no friends and nothing to do? You know, it's a weird message, be yourself for kids, because it reminds you as a kid as Sarah yeah. hinted, you know, yourself is precisely sometimes who you don't want to be. Mm. And, and it's this recurrent bloody message that you take drugs to fit in, like everyone's a junkie zombie out there. Yeah, but peer do, pressure. Well, you do drugs precisely not to fit in, you know, with a true mm. zombification of capitalism or whatever you're thinking about at that time. Mm. And I remember very soon after this, there was one of those Smith and Jones talking heads. And Mel Mm. Smith goes, it's a great campaign, you know, it just means that if a cop asks you if you've got any drugs, you just say no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, in this case, just say no, it's no different to Marie Antoinette saying, just eat cake, (laughs) or that mad woman in the cabinet saying, just eat turnips.
3: I mean, yeah, it it is... I mean oh god this is this is all stuff I could rant about all the live long day drugs or no drugs but it is going to be more complicated than that mm. it's so insultingly reductive to just say no I mean yeah like you said if it's about peer pressure and the delicate sort of social ecosystem of school mm. just Barking a refusal at someone who might be trying to bring you into their group, you know, in the way that friends might do. It's not necessarily like, ha ha, I've got drugs, I'm going to corrupt you with them. You know, it's like, well, mate, maybe we want you to be our mate. It's just we think you're sound. It's like, no, Mm. this is not going to be good for you. (laughs) However
1: bad drugs are for you, that's not good either. No. Oh, God, I'm doing it now. (laughs) No, thank you.
3: I mean, also the weird slippage that you get with this, with the message and the song and the video is like, yeah, most of the lyrics that you can hear are just really vaguely about, like I said, that kind of social ecosystem of school and about the kind of Mm. dynamic between people, I think... Mm. They obviously kind of swerved being really explicit about it. Mm. But you just end up nowhere. And it's like, well, are you talking about being yourself? Which you might not want to be. You might want to go, Jesus Christ. Well, I A, I don't know what that means. Yeah.
1: B, mm. ah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't listen. Don't listen to anyone else. All you got to do is be yourself. Suffer- For all we know, God might have said that to Peter Sudcliffe in that <laughs> graveyard <laughs> in-, in Polish.
3: Yeah. It's
1: so fucking vague, isn't
0: it? It is. That's not necessarily a good thing. No. I'm not saying British people shouldn't do American stuff. That is true a lot of the time, though. It is. But, I mean, it's still a mawkish pile of shit, this record. (laughs) in It's American iteration. Mm. But... It would have been a professional-sounding Morkish pile of shit, probably yeah, with yeah. a fabulously appointed video. I mean, because it's British, and because it's the living version of, you know, the front cover of the Come and Praise Hymn book, i.e. the Grange Hill cast, <laughs> it's this weird thing of this yeah. rub between this attempted professionalism, but just this endless amateurishness. Mm-hmm. That as a kid, you would just find, I mean, I guess what you'd say now is totally cringe. And I, I showed this <clears> to <throat> Sophia, Ooh. and she literally cringed herself inside out. She could <laughs> Oh, um, um, so the cringe factor in this just hasn't gone away, and this is why it failed. Mm.
3: You did see like the American version, didn't you? Whatever, yeah, the, there was the a little clip of it on Drug mm. Watch. Yeah, yeah. It was much tighter, and uh, you know, it still had the kind of slightly unpleasant sax. Not that I'm completely anti-sax, but it was, you know, it's not the best. <laughs> it's not the best use of the controversial instrument.
1: You practice safe sax, don't you, Sarah? <laughs> Absolutely, always.
3: But yeah, it, it was. It wasn't funky, but it was funkier. Mm. There was a a whiff of funk about Mm. it, at least. You know, it's a whiff of the street... Yes. (laughs) Yes. Is, you know, <laughs> there is no whiff of the street here whatsoever. No. It, it is the damp indoor air of a comprehensive school.
1: Obviously, chaps, Lee McDonald, uh, Zamo, is the centrepiece of the entire operation. I mean, Zamo's got another series in him. Uh, the next one focuses on his rehabilitation and his Ugh. reunion with Jackie Wright. But Lee, the actor, has an eye on the future as a Daily Mirror article at the end of the year spells out. Headline <laughs> next to Posing with Frank Bruno. Frank and fearless, I'm ready to be a champion, says TV's junkie kid. <laughs> pocket-sized TV star Zamo is a knockout with Grange Hill fans and Lee MacDonald who plays the drug-taking 6 former in the hit BBC series is aiming to pull no punches in real life. The 18-year-old Lee is a brilliant amateur boxer with his sights set on a place in the British team for the 1988 Olympics in Seoul. Lee has no fears about combining acting and boxing. I'm going to keep boxing until i'm 21 then if i'm good enough i'll turn professional i love boxing and i love acting and i want to keep both going for as long as possible that's why i've also applied for a place at drama school my ambition is to get a part in eastenders but lee still finds time to enjoy himself I go out with my mates from Jill every Friday and Saturday night, says the chirpy cockney. We're all VIP members of the Hippodrome, Stringfellows and the Limelight, so we're there almost every weekend. Oh, oh Absolutely no chance of coming across anybody with any drugs in those places, is there? <laughs> I mean, before we go any further, chaps, because we, we've only just scratched the surface of this, we have mm. to absolve the cast of Jill for any yeah, responsibility yeah, yeah. for this shit. Because, you know, it's pretty obvious that they weren't allowed to say no
0: when it came to the recording of yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people fucking bought it. That's what I can't quite fathom out.
1: But if you're a certain age and you hear the Castor grange are making a record, I guess you're so. going to buy it, aren't you? I guess so. And you know the BBC are shoving it up
0: at every child's arse on the telly at the moment. Incessantly, yeah. <laughs> Incessantly. Mm. Perhaps yeah. why it fails. But, I mean, why it fails is because... I mean, the whole campaign fails, Drug Watch, and, and also mm. that the, the, it's not just News Newsround Special.
1: Yeah, we do need to talk about why it failed, but before that, why are Grain Chill and the government and all the advertising campaigns just focusing on heroin? Because there's other drugs about.
3: I think it's it's possibly something to do with, you know, it being a drug of deprived areas and stuff. Mm. With, because then that's a nice, neat way to kind of put the personal responsibility on you
0: to mm. uh, pull
3: yeah. yourself up by your bootstraps, you know. Because yes. then you don't actually have to do anything like, build good houses or anything like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really important.
3: Also, I think it's that heroin because we don't, we've never had like meth in this country in a big way. And heroin was always that. I, I think it was just like the, the ultimate drugs, you know, it's like the, yeah. the
1: worst. The the boss level of drugs. Yeah. yeah. It's the
3: end of level <laughs> boss of drugs. You know what I mean? It's just got that. I don't know if where that came from, but I think it's
1: just sort of got this mythos around it. Mm. I've got to say, I don't know anyone in my entire life who's done heroin. That's been the one drug that everyone's just kept away from. Oh, God. It's not a party drug, is it? No. No, it isn't.
2: <laughs> no. <laughs>
3: I, I mean, I know a couple of people who have tried it once in mm. order to, because you can actually do that, you know, contrary to a lot oh, of... Don't uh, listen
1: to Sarah Popcraig
0: No, she's not right. She's completely right.
3: Don't listen, don't listen to... <laughs> it is, um, as I understand it, okay, I feel like I should do a caveat, which is that, you know, we are we are sticking our asses way out of our remit for this, <laughs> this mm. podcast in some ways. Um, and, you know, none of us are drug or drug policy experts, just people who've done <laughs> done some and lived
1: um but well that um, was the problem sarah because the way they were going on about drugs not so much in this video but o- on the advertising you know the heroin screws you up it's like you take oh, this you yeah. die eventually yeah yeah. yeah
3: yeah you you will and that was the
1: problem because a few years later you know, my mates and eventually me started doubling. It's like, oh shit, I'm still alive. Uh, they were all talking bollocks. Well, that's absolutely it. Yeah, Yeah,
3: I had a sort of similar similar thing when I was, uh you know, I mean, later even than you know, slow coach Colcarney, <laughs> who didn't do any drugs until he was 16. God. <laughs> <laughs> my God. That's so lame. But, um yeah, I was, you know, 18 or something, and, the, yeah. and when I was at university, and the whole Leah Betts thing happened, and that was, I think I've spoken Ooh. about it before, and those big Posters with her her mm. smiling face and the black the black and the white kind of grainy thing and it's like sorted mm. just one ecstasy tablet took mm. Leah Betts and I, I had the fear of God put to me about this and then when I actually did it and I I had two kind of failed attempts because I I was I wanted to try the thing mm. uh, but I was terrified and that yeah. actually because it is quite sensitive to your moods and I think I probably had bad stuff to start with anyway so I had a pill and then just spent several hours just going I'm gonna die I'm gonna die I'm gonna die and mm. I did not die. And then I didn't mm. die the second time. I didn't have a nice time either. And then the third time I did it, I had an amazing time, which mm. is the whole point. Yeah. And then the next day I'll wake up and you pat yourself down and go, yeah. I didn't die. Ha ah. Yeah. It's quite a cliche, really, but you do then start to question what you've been told in mm, the larger yes. sense. Like, yeah. okay, why has there been money spent to terrify yeah. me? And stop me and and make Mm. me think, make me fear that I'm going to die to stop Mm. me from doing this. And obviously it's like, that's your personal experience that that it's a hugely complex, um, large thing. But your personal experience is to go, huh, well, what else am I being liked about? And it's, Mm. that's where it goes. And so that's why you start to understand it's not just Mm. about the drugs. Yeah. It's not just about how much they care about whether you live or die. It's about bigger stuff than that
0: yeah yeah I mean look up until you have your first drug experience or up until you have, you experience drugs for yourself these kind of campaigns they do work in a sense because they they put this terror in you mm, yeah the nature of a moral panic is uh, uh, as Sarah's hinted that, that it, it completely ignores obviously this entire campaign the sort of systemic complex reasons why there's a lot of drug use in this country mm. it tries to instill this almost Pavlovian response to drugs that like you know you just you see the word heroin and it's terrifying Mm. and you know once i ended up i mean look i didn't end up (laughs) in the shooting gallery or anything all i mean is (laughs) once i ended up sat in a room and somebody was doing some heroin yes i thought god that looks really squalid and i didn't Mm. want to do it what made you want to do it you had no need (laughs) (laughs) but you know i mean it's something i think about a lot because i have to have these conversations in a sense not only with kids that i teach but also my own kids yeah but crucially it's a conversation you know yeah, yeah. because no one wants
1: teenage kids to be doing anything adulterated do you know what I mean
0: well no, no. I mean look th- what Drug Watch is doing what Just Say No is trying to do is, yeah, it's like a Pavlovian dog. It's this, It's like when you go to get hypnotized to stop smoking or something. Mm. They, they just kind of repeat this phrase until it's so in your head yeah. that that would ward you away. But out of the moral panics of the 80s, I guess the Americans had satanic panic and we had this. Yes. But both of them just ignore the really complex reasons because that's messy and difficult and, and you know, takes time. Um, mm. They'd rather just kind of, it's almost like this kind of idiot training. Just say no. Just say no. Let's just keep saying that until Mm, kids don't do it.
3: Yeah. It's behavioural conditioning is what it is. That's it. Yeah. And it's perfect in its way, in the sense that it's a total abdication of any greater responsibility. Um, And because it puts it completely on the individual to, um, it's so, you know, it's so simple. Just say no. And then if you don't do that and you get yourself into some trouble with the law or with your health... Should have just said
1: no. I mean, yeah, expecting me to shake your hand. <laughs> just say no. It's, it's essentially government saying, look, we're, we're getting our arses kicked in the war on drugs. And there are things we could do to deal with it, like, you know, legalizing some drugs or no. and making their use as safe as possible and, no. you know, taxing the shit out of it to keep the NHS going. No. But we're not going to do that. So if you actually take drugs and it all goes wrong, it's all your fault, mate.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of, uh, I, I hesitate to draw this parallel with recent events, but the same kind of personal responsibility absolutism uh, has, that has given us some of the highest drug death numbers in Europe also gave us some of the highest COVID death numbers in the world. Because yes. for me yeah. personally, like I've risked my health outside the law for a good time and I've risked my health inside the law for a good time and guess which one had the life-altering consequences Mm. in each case it's like it's all on the individual to do the best risk assessment that they can with really scant information this is the thing as well as the kind of withholding of information which still happens now like, there's been some progress on this with, with kind of drug testing at festivals and, and things like that. And, I mean, the Talk to Frank website, which is kind of uh, better than nothing, just about... Although I'm not sure how, how often it's being updated now. But um, basically, mm. you don't have... You know, we, you were saying earlier about, like, oh, you could... You know, if you studied this, you, you were allowed access to the, the book with all the stuff in it about drugs. It's like, well, why is that restricted in the first place? Mm. You know, it's well because just say no. Why would you need any of that when you could just say no? Like, yeah. the thing is, it has yeah. been pre- proven as a policy which came from America and then we adopted it ourselves in in a kind of vague but persistent way. It's been proven not to work. What works Mm. is, you know, actual education, actual information. Mm. And talking more about it and in a more nuanced and non-judgmental way, that's what actually works, but that's more expensive. Mm. So it doesn't work, but it works because people want it to, because people believe in it at some really like primal level. And so yeah. it's never going to go away I don't think because mm. it's too like I said it's just too perfect well just just say no but it doesn't work but but it has to but <laughs> just just yeah.
0: say no i mean if i tried saying to like my, my daughters just say no <laughs> I, mean, I mean start as that's not a conversation you know that's that's just me telling them to do that yeah when you're talking about drugs with kids you know you have to realize that drugs are a part of their life even if they don't take them mm. because their friends will be taking them i mean you know yeah. kids at secondary school now are doing things at the weekend right that their adult parents are doing and It's pointless me saying to my daughter, just say no, just don't do anything. I have to say the sensible... I mean, perhaps this isn't the sensible thing. Mm. But what I've said to my daughters is you know never pay for anything um, <laughs> apart from weed and look just be fucking careful you cannot destroy that impulse to get out of your head no or, or to or, or to get out of your face you cannot destroy that simply by saying you don't need that in your life mm. you know go to the gym instead yes um so it has to be uh, it, crucially it has get, to be a get some
1: proper steroids there mate it's <laughs> well, exactly. human growth hormone I mean, it,
0: It is very telling, isn't it, that the the boxing gym and the gym always seems to be the solution. But yeah, I mean, these are... Instead of damaging your brain, damage
1: someone else's.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But crucially, none of this campaign, either in the States or over over here, is a conversation. It's not a conversation. Mm. It's, It's hectoring.
3: Yeah. It's abstinence, isn't it? It's abstinence only which doesn't work any better for drugs than it does for sex, because no. these are natural urges. No. The terrible thing about just say no is that, of course, it's going to work for some people. Yeah, mm. Some people would have been like me, and they would have seen that Leobet's um, poster and gone, no, no. Mm. No, thank you. <laughs> or some some variation on that and just not, not tried it ever at all. But, you know, I had the urge and I was not a kid then. I was, no. you know, a young adult. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I was extremely sensible and I was very cautious and, you know, and it wasn't about peer pressure and it wasn't about any of these other things. It was just like, I want to know. Yeah. And that's something that is really difficult for people and societies to deal with but it is not going away Mm -hmm. and a lot of great things can come out of that indeed i don't want to come on here going (laughs) drugs because you know i'm not a dickhead like Mm. i understand that this is a huge issue and it can really destroy people's lives i mean there are at least three artists in this episode of top of the pops alone whose lives have been blighted Mm. by drugs Mm. you know (laughs) including Zamo, who Mm. survived but you know um it's scary really to think that this is like this is still really this is nearly 40 years later and we haven't significantly moved on from this no
0: no good god no the message is still the same, isn't it?
1: The only thing that's moved on is the drugs. Yeah. If Grain Chill was still going today and they did an anti-drug song, the first question would be, well, okay, what drugs should we focus on? The crappy ones like the nitrous oxide or Crocodile or something like
3: that? We should say, actually, as we're recording at this time, the government has announced that as part of a crackdown on antisocial behaviour, yeah. they're criminalising the possession of... Mm-hmm nitrous oxide or laughing gas, Mm. um, which was already illegal to uh, manufacture or supply under the Psychoactive Substances Act of 2016, which I remember laughing about grimly when it happened. Mm. It's one of those impossible pieces of legislation that doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) Because it's like, um, okay, any uh, novel substance that, you know, because they were trying to deal with legal highs, which obviously were a huge problem. They had to do something, but not this, Mm. you know, because you could say scented candles... If they make you, if they give you a nice sense memory of when you were 12 and you went to the beach, like anything that makes you feel a feeling at all. No, just say no.
0: And (laughs) all political parties have to do that. They have to talk tough constantly about this issue. Mm. Um, I mean, Labour last (sighs) week we're talking about oh yeah these poor families who, who smell a bit of weed in their back yeah. or whatever as if it's the end of the world and and yeah this this talking tough rhetoric it's never going to go mm you know and this is why every now and then you'll get a politician asked whether they've done weed and I was, all of them seemingly you know didn't enjoy it Yeah, or, you know and it's just the, man- the maintenance of that tone constantly means we're not going to go anywhere with this issue No, you're not crediting the kids with anything you're not crediting the kids with their own reconnaissance in a sense the only way to really find out about drugs is to yeah to live ultimately to live into your 20s where these things become part of your life mm. um, not part of your life on a daily basis I just mean you get exposed (laughs) to the realities of drugs rather than this nonsense um, that governments have to shoot out Mm. the
3: thing is one of the many many insulting and patronising ideas that persists is the kind of casual user to addict pipeline which yeah, yeah. it's a different thing. It's that's insulting to both people who struggle with addiction and to casual users because these are yeah. Of course, one can you know you, you don't become an addict without first being a casual user, but being a casual user does not necessarily mean that you're going to end up you know, dribbling in an alley behind a bin with a needle in your arm. That's not mm. how it mm. works. I mean, I was going to say, like I said, not being an expert, but I do understand that heroin specifically, it does. it's legendarily addictive and it is very addictive, but it's not like you have one go and you're like, oh, that's, that's me, yeah. that's my yeah. life. Mm. It takes you a while to get physically addicted to it. I think if you like it, then you're going to feel addicted to it sooner than your body starts to need it but Mm. there's a reason for that drugs are a solution before they are a problem they're a solution Mm. to a larger problem where people have pain or grief Mm. or just they're lost in some way and that's often why you know there will be reasons there'll be psychological reasons why people end up in that you know like i said it's very complicated
0: the psychological and hereditary and social reasons for drug use just they're not a part of any of these campaigns at all.
1: Mm. But going back to the mid 80s, I mean, about a year after this episode, Zamo became the absolute byword for a custard gannet or anyone you knew who did drugs. I mean, by the end of this year, I'd started going to another college and I started to mix with kids from the posh end of town. Mm. All on the hash and everything. And, you know, my working class background just prevented me from uh, tucking into the drugs because it was just like, no, we don't do this shit. Mm. They'd be there having a spliff and pass it over to me and I'd immediately say, no no thanks, mate. I saw what it did to Zamo. (laughs) I get
0: high on life.
1: Yes. Yeah, And, and round about that time, some of the dancers in my year at college did a show somewhere in town, and they were supported by a nearby comprehensive school who'd done a musical about the drug problem, set in a school where even the dinner ladies were dealing hash on the side. And I wish I could remember every second of it, but the only thing I can remember is near the middle, where um the female central character just appears under a spotlight and sings a song which sounded not dissimilar to a little piece by nicole Mm -hmm. and the opening lines were i'm so depressed and i don't know why i'm hooked on drugs and i'm going to die (laughs) and my entire class just sliding off their chairs pissing themselves (laughs) laughing (laughs) oh, I wish I could remember more about it. I wish there was someone out there who was in that musical to tell us yeah. all about it. And so I can apologise to them for just laughing so derisively at them. Oh. By the time I got to university and was living with a load of custard gannets, we did have in the window of our shared house a picture of Zamo which had been ripped out of the Grange <laughs> Hill And someone had cut his eyes out and done a bit of a spirograph of them. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's the thing. This isn't even a song or anything that sort of like took time to pass into joke folklore. No. It it was a joke as soon as it appeared. The people it was trying to reach just laughed at it
1: and of course top of the pulse feeling very pleased with itself and lecturing the kids you know just a couple <laughs> of years before they play they call it acid mm-hmm.
3: he's a good he's
2: ebenezer
1: Yes, good.
3: i was in an office i was doing a, a, a like a social copywriting job a few years ago and radio one was on in the office and everyone there was much younger than me and ebenezer good came on and it's like is this real? Yeah. They couldn't believe it. It's like, what? This was a real record that someone people bought it and it was in the charts. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were just like, what?
1: (laughs) Why didn't anybody do a fucking crappy rave
0: version of this? (laughs) Yeah. I would have
1: sold a fucking shitload.
0: In that period where 70s stuff was getting parodied and stuff in rave changes, yeah, yeah, it would have been big.
1: And someone else should have done a cover of The Firms tune, Day Daylight, He's alright yeah. <laughs> Opportunity missed
3: Oh yeah 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 it's Imagine what's going on In the universe Where that happened
1: mm. Mm. so the following week just say no soared 21 places to number 5 where it stayed for 2 weeks it ended up selling a quarter of a million copies in the UK and the cast were congratulated in the House of Parliament for covering their sorry asses in the fight against drugs and they appeared outside the Adelphi Theatre in October forming a big no Good Morning Britain opening credits style article in the Guardian members of the cast of tv's grange hill spell out their view of drugs no (laughs) they will be joining show business stars in the just say no gala evening at the adelphi theater to raise cash for drug counseling centers others who have agreed to appear include sasha distel wayne sleep alvin stardust kids you must be out of your tiny minds john inman Don McLean and members of the cast of Emmerdale Farm and Coronation Street. Wow. Well, that's going to put some sense into the kids, isn't it? <laughs> Sasha Distel,
0: just say no. The kids from Grange Hill, I think some of them turn up in Ferry Aid in a couple Ooh. of years. So this isn't the last time, you know? And emboldened
1: by the chart success of Just Say No, Phil Redmond, creator of the show, hustled his cast back into the studio to record Grange Hill, the album. A mixture of medleys and original material. Are you ready for the track list?
0: Oh, yes, please. Oh,
1: you yeah. know the teacher. Open brackets. Smash head close brackets <laughs> girls like to do it too that ain't right the it turns out to be bullying yes uh, <laughs> led by Imelda Davis a
3: few yeah do you collect stamps
1: yes <laughs>
3: no just say no
1: <laughs> we also have school love no supervision
0: at break <laughs>
1: biology. This sounds like a fucking Gary Glitter or Jonathan King album, doesn't
0: it? I wonder if School Love is a cover of the Anvil tune of School Love. That would be amazing. And I now need to hear that. Because that's a tune, man.
1: Just say no, of course. Don't stop. A lad's medley, which includes My Generation, The Walk of Life, The Wanderer, and Rocking All Over the World. And Jones performing I don't like Mondays.
3: Oh, what? (laughs) Do they know what that's about?
1: (laughs) Then there's a girls medley which includes What a Wonderful World, Sweet Nothings, Why Do Fool's Fall in Love and Da-Do-Ron-Ron and a medley of the greatest love of all, and that's what friends are for. Wow. I hope Roland and Janet sang them too. Oh my God. But it and the single taken from it, You Know the Teacher, Smashhead, <laughs> failed to chart but later this year the cast of Grainshell were whipped over to Washington DC to appear with Nancy Reagan at the White House for a special Just Say No day, with Zamo sat next to the first lady and Faye Lucas presenting her with a 12 inch of Just Say No which, according to Lee McDonald she lobbed under the sofa forgot about at the end and just walked off, (laughs) presumably to have it off with Frank Sinatra again (laughs) 10 weeks after this episode was broadcast the tabloids announced that heroin was back and collaborating with boy george yeah junkie george has six (laughs) weeks to live and after falling out of favour and being superseded by Ecstasy in the late 80s, Heroin made a comeback when it teamed up with a sort of grunge and Britpop acts in the early 90s before working with the Libertines, and is still going today. <laughs> and by recording this single, the cast of Grange Hill slapped a target on their back in 1999 John Olford failed to heed Samo's instructions in the gym and was convicted of supplying drugs to the fake sheikh Mazeer Mahmood of the News of the World and jailed for six weeks round about the same time Erkan Mustafa who played Roland Browning was caught in another sting by the Sunday Mirror when he offered to get them heroin, cocaine and ecstasy claimed he was making £900 a night selling drugs in his club and bragged that he and the cast smuggled drugs into America and he was ripped to the tits in the White House, which he later said was all bollocks and it bit him fiercely in the arse. He also claimed in that Sunday Mirror interview that he went to Top of the Pops off his face to mime the song, which is absolute bollocks because the two appearances of this single were the screening of the video. (laughs) And in the mid-90s, the journalist Taylor Parks, who's in the green room of The Word for a Melody Maker article... When he chanced upon that week's guests, members of the cast of Grange Hill, running round animatedly, singing <laughs> Just Say Yes. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just say
2: no, no. Just say no, just say no, no.
1: Just say no, just say, oh, say no. Oh, man, no. tell me we didn't just bang just on about no, Just Say No, no for say no nearly no. an hour and a quarter. Fucking hell. Anyway, we're all off to the gym now to shake our asses in front of a mirror for a bit and do some completely wrong hand gestures at some kids, but we shall return tomorrow for the final part of this episode of chart music. Oh, and by the way, do not sleep on the video playlist for this episode Pop Crazy youngsters. Everything we've talked about is there in visual form, including that astonishing display of BBC star power at the end of drug watch anyway on behalf of Nilko and Sarah B this is Al Needham advising you very strongly to stay pop crazed music when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers